Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 158, A Royal Ruckus and the Panitsa Plot. Now, a quick thank you to our newest patrons, Michael O'Regan and Evilo Hajiev. Big thank you to both of you and anyone else. Even one, two dollars an episode can get you some cool benefits and a big thank you from me. So, well, consider supporting us. But otherwise, let's get into it. Now, last time, we covered yet another failed Russian-backed uprising, resulting in that country kind of shifting its tactics for overthrowing the Bulgarian government. Stambolov further cemented his control over the country despite getting into an intense dispute with the church and the Vienna to Constantinople rail line linking Bulgaria to the rest of Europe as never before was finally completed. Now, I'm going to begin today's episode catching up a bit with Serbia. Now, obviously, the 1885 war had been disastrous for Serbia and King Milan, and within a few years following the war, Milan had been beset by scandals, which damaged Serbian prestige, and he was also kind of paranoid about the potential return to the throne of the rival Karadjordjevic dynasty, whose candidate Peter was living in exile. So things are not going great for Milan and Serbia. But in particular, Milan feuded a lot with his wife, who was ardently pro-Russian, and they fought over a lot of issues, including the idea of educating their son Alexander in Austria. So Milan wanted him to be educated in Austria, but his pro-Russian wife did not. This ultimately led to Milan seeking a divorce, and there was more political infighting, and finally, with the king's wife and son actually leaving the country in 1887. All of this led to a situation where situation where in late 1888, Milan found himself unable to win a governing majority in elections despite the use of police to affect the results. Thus, he decided that basically his only decision available was to abdicate. He summoned the Constitutional Assembly, which drafted a new more liberal constitution. This was accepted by the Parliament and King in early January. And in March 1889, Milan formally abdicated in favor of his 13-year-old son, Alexander. Now, this obviously meant that a regency would have to form in order to govern until Alexander was old enough to rule on his own. The regency was headed by former prime minister, well, a former prime minister, and Milan explicitly forbade his ex-wife from staying in Serbia during this time in a bid to kind of curtail her influence on their son and, frankly, the whole government. But she ignored these restrictions, insisting that she would stay in Serbia with her son and that nobody was going to stop her. The young Alexander also made some anti-Bulgarian comments shortly after his father abdicated, but, well, he was a 13-year-old, so it didn't affect bilateral relations very much. Everyone kind of understood that, uh, you know, puberty, hormones, kids, 13-year-olds aren't the uh, wisest with their words. So it was all kind of water under the bridge. Now, this takes us to early, the early 1890s. But 
Still, I want to give kind of a sense of what was happening in Serbia at this moment, because as a result of all of this, the country at this moment has a more liberal and democratic constitution, but also a very weak and divided monarchy and government. Serbia is frustrated that its attempts to expand into Bosnia and Bulgaria have both been foiled, and it's torn between allying itself more with Russia or more with Austria-Hungary. But Serbia wasn't the only country experiencing a royal crisis in the early days of 1889. Austria-Hungary was at this moment ruled by Emperor Franz Josef, who had one son and heir named Rudolf. He was far more liberal than his arch-conservative father, but really, who wasn't, uh, leading to the two having a somewhat strained relationship. Now, Rudolf married the daughter of the King of Belgium in 1881, and they had one daughter together. However, the marriage soon became a very unhappy one, and Rudolf began to see other women. Rudolf wanted to annul the marriage, but his father would not allow it. They were, as you know, arch-Catholics. And that just wasn't going to fly. So by 1886, Rudolf and his wife had actually contracted gonorrhea, which made his wife sterile. So the marriage would, was now basically incapable of ever producing a son and heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. All of this led to January 1889. By then, the 30-year-old Rudolf had been having an affair with a 17-year-old, side note, ew, and the two killed themselves together at a hunting lodge, evidently out of despair that they would never be allowed to be together. Now, as a result, the only living offspring of the emperor was his granddaughter, and she was not eligible to the, for the throne because she was a girl, and so suddenly Franz Josef's brother was next in line. However, the brother soon renounced this role, and all of a sudden, ipso facto, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire was the emperor's nephew, a man named Franz Ferdinand. Now, importantly, Franz Ferdinand was also not nearly as conservative as his uncle and generally supported transforming the empire into kind of a federation by granting more autonomy to its various ethnic groups. But still, for now, he was only the crown prince. Now, the death of Rudolf greatly affected Prince Ferdinand in Bulgaria because the two had spent a lot of time together as children. Ferdinand was just three years younger than Rudolf, and they two, the two shared many interests. But they were also related by marriage, and they just generally had a good relationship. Ferdinand was quite upset that he couldn't attend the funeral because it was still too dangerous for him to leave Bulgaria. So, while Serbia was in the hands of a regency, Austria-Hungary's leadership remained exactly the same, but was frankly quite shaken up by the death of the crown prince and having just the kind of future of the empire thrown into question. Meanwhile, in Bulgaria, early 1889 saw the National Assembly pass a range of new laws. National pensions were introduced and a law for standardized measures and weights, as well as taxes on agricultural production. All these things were changed. So, you know, Bulgaria's taking advantage of the kind of normalcy of this time, the slightly greater stability to take care of a lot of laws that needed to get passed at some point, or addressing a lot of issues at least. But two major themes were ongoing. First, the low-key struggle for power within the government between Stambulov and Ferdinand, along with ongoing efforts to expand influence in Macedonia. On the first issue, Ferdinand had been seeking a place or seeking to place his friend and supporter Christo Popov at the head of the army. 
Popov was a war hero, popular, and had supported Stambolov's counter-coup against, uh, well, the coup plotters, you remember. However, in May of 1889, Popov was arrested on Stambolov's orders after evidence emerged that he had falsified documents and misspent official funds. His supporters within the military wanted to remove Stambolov from power and release him, but Popov told him not to because he did not want to destabilize the country even more. But the incident still did sort of destabilize the country, mostly because it furthered the rift between Stambolov and Ferdinand. While Ferdinand unsurprisingly wanted leniency for his friend and supporter, Stambolov demanded harsh enforcement of the law. This endeared Ferdinand to the officer corps and made Stambolov look really bad. Ultimately, Popov was given amnesty and freed, but that damage had all already been done. In late summer 1889, Stambolov and the pro-Russian Serbian prime minister did meet in Sofia. The Serbs proposed an anti-Ottoman confederation, which would enable both states to conquer and divide Macedonia between them, but Stambolov saw this as an attempt to divide and weaken Bulgaria, recognizing that the country was in no position to conduct such an operation, militarily or diplomatically. Remember, Bulgaria was still much more isolated than Serbia because no one recognized Ferdinand as its legitimate sovereign, and Russia was really mad at it, whereas Serbia was sort of being courted by Austria-Hungary and by Russia, and its monarchy was universally recognized. So as a result, Stamilov quickly decided to inform Greece and the Ottoman Empire about the Serbian offer. This reflected Stamilov's unique approach to Macedonia. He knew that simply annexing territory militarily was just not realistic and wasn't going to be so anytime soon. So in the meantime, he worked to expand Bulgaria's soft power, its cultural and religious influence there. And in order to do that, he needed to maintain good relations with the Ottoman Empire, while also slowly convincing the population of Macedonia that they should ultimately join Bulgaria. This was a long-term strategy, but it made a lot of sense. But it also meant that Stamloff would repress Macedonian revolutionaries and brigands with equal force, because he did not want a pro-Bulgarian uprising in Macedonia to sort of upset all of his very carefully laid plans, and to make the Ottomans mad. He wanted things done gradually and peacefully, and anyone who opposed that, even if they had the same goals in the long run, was going to be an enemy. But this was not easy. In early summer, a Bulgarian metropolitan was appointed to Skopje, but intense backlash from the patriarch in Constantinople, along with Greece, Serbia, and Russia, forced him to be recalled. So this kind of showed why diplomacy was critical for Stambolov's strategy to work. On the one hand, his strategy with the Ottomans worked. He managed to convince them to allow Bulgaria to appoint this metropolitan, but bad diplomatic relationships elsewhere backfired on the whole thing. But despite these setbacks, Bulgaria was undoubtedly stabilizing at this moment. Constant writes how, quote, harbors and railway lines were under construction. The most spectacular results could be seen in Sofia. Visitors to Sofia, who had seen it in the past, were amazed to find that almost all the sites of the old Turkish provincial town had disappeared. Large public gardens were laid out. Long boulevards had taken over from the mud and rubble of the old town. New ornate bridges spanned the river, and large public buildings and monuments had sprung up. 
Most of this was accomplished on the basis of a loan for Sophia contracted in London, end quote. Indeed, 1889 would see the completion of the famous Lions Bridge, which still exists in Sofia, and the foundation of the Sofia Bicycle Club, and a German cultural and educational organization in the city. So, Sofia is progressing quite a lot, and many of the things that define the city today are being built. So, by August, on the occasion of Ferdinand's second anniversary as prince, it was decided to project a sense of stability with grand celebrations. Now, many actually thought that the prince would declare independence from the Ottomans on this occasion, but that didn't happen. Still, in light of this new kind of general feeling of stability, Ferdinand decided to make his first foreign trip as prince to Vienna and Paris, his two favorite places basically, in the fall of 1889. Now, in reality, there were still near constant threats to Ferdinand's life, and his trip reflected this. He traveled under an alias, he published false itineraries to throw off potential assassins, he even wore chainmail under his clothes. But still, the kind of, you could say the propaganda value, but like the, the, the PR value, you could say, of the trip was important enough that it offset all the dangers, and well, this is how it had to be. You know, they, they, they couldn't let the world know just how many threats there were to the uh, sovereign's life, and so they decided on this approach. The trip did show that feelings towards Ferdinand in Europe were beginning to shift, though. Austria-Hungary, Britain, and Germany were all now willing to formally recognize him, in theory, even if they were still hesitant due to fears of upsetting Russia. Indeed, Stamilov himself remarked that, quote, when we rebel, we have the Treaty of Berlin thrown in our teeth, a treaty which Russia herself was the first to break and is breaking every day. She still hopes to bring her candidate by assassination and bribes, but if it ever comes to an issue, there will always be more Bulgarians in favor of a free Bulgaria than a Russian province. End quote. So, there is Stambolov's approach to all of this. But still... You know, Russian opposition is powerful, as we know. It's almost like pathological. I mean, the, the obsession that uh, Alexander has, Tsar Alexander, with this issue is interesting, to say the least. But, again, shit kind of moods are shifting. And in fact, after meeting Ferdinand, the Austrian foreign minister wrote to the Sultan about the Ottomans potentially recognizing him. The letter stated that, quote, it must be wounding to Bulgarian national feeling that Bulgaria, whose correct behavior in Europe is widely acknowledged, should still be treated as an outlaw. Its illegal status acts as a perceptible check to the aspirations of the industrious Bulgarian people who are able to assert their political and economic independence with remarkable calm and moderation. Recently, Bulgaria has undeniably become a pillar of peace and order in the Balkan Peninsula. What will happen there should Bulgaria abandon this prudent policy? End quote. Constant points out that the Sultan wanted to recognize Ferdinand, but after kind of probing the Russians for their reaction, he was met with, quote, a streaming display of indignation and threats, end quote. So the Sultan decided to just drop the whole matter. Again, plenty of countries were ready to recognize Ferdinand, save for the Russian threats. But in the meantime, it meant that while abroad, Ferdinand would not be permitted to meet with other monarchs. 
Constant writes about how this affected his pride, writing, quote, The humiliation of the years ahead and the wounds to his self-esteem and pride embittered him and honed his readiness to take offense to hypersensitivity. It was a torment to him that having got that far, he, with all his pride in his family and royal ancestry, his self-esteem, his monarchical obsession, his inkling of a predestined great role in history, should not be able to mix with the monarchs of Europe as an equal. The slight to which he was subjected stung deep. When Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm I died in 1888, Bismarck returned the official Bulgarian telegram of condolence with the comment that he was, quote, not in a position to accept such documents, end quote for Bismarck and the whole constant quote. So the trip as a whole was a mixture success, I'd say. Ferdinand did garner more goodwill towards Bulgaria and managed to secure some loans, but no European power would recognize him. On the other hand, it was no doubt good for his mental health to just spend some time back in familiar environments, familiar for many reasons as we know. And around this time, Bulgaria also signed signed trade and tariff agreements with Great Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, Austria-Hungary, and Switzerland. So, you know, Bulgaria's economic ties were developing along with these kind of diplomatic ones. Now, while Ferdinand had been gone, however, our old friend Tsankov wrote a letter to Stambolov with a proposal. Tsankov wanted the prime minister to take advantage of Ferdinand's absence by deposing him, reconciling with Russia, and electing a new prince. Of course, he also kindly asked to be allowed to enter Bulgaria again. Stamblov did what he normally did and ignored the request. In fact, Tsankov and his supporters have been attempting to contact the heads of all the political parties to ask for their support in overthrowing Ferdinand, but they seem to have been ignored at every door. Still, Russia's attempts to pressure Bulgaria continued unabated. Soon, a demand came from St. Petersburg that Bulgaria pay nearly 600,000 rubles to cover expenses occurred during the Russo-Turkish War. They also accused Bulgaria of failing to pay 3.6 million rubles that it owed to Russia. Tambolov agreed to pay the new 600,000 ruble bill, but for the other amount, he politely reminded Russia that Sofia had actually been depositing 800,000 rubles into an account for St. Petersburg in Sofia every single year since 1883, according to their treaty obligations. The problem was simply that, as Thambolov put it, Russia had not condescend to claim or accept it. End quote. In other words, Sofia was following its obligations and depositing the money for Russia, but Russian attempts to isolate Bulgaria meant it had no way to claim the money. And, well, they had the gall to ask for it anyways. Honestly, it's a bit of a funny situation. But, in any case, Perry writes how Stambolov's handling of the situation showed that, quote, he was both reasonable and not awed by Russian power, end quote. Which is a fair kind of analysis of Stambolov. Right? He, he's not going to be intimidated by anyone. New elections for the National Assembly were held in September, and 200 out of the 285 deputies elected were supporters of Stambolov. Voter turnout was around 33%, which I guess is better than previous elections for the most part, but still quite low. Still, there were fewer instances of violence, showing that either Stambolov's methods were getting more subtle or that he enjoyed enough popularity that such a heavy hand wasn't necessary. I'm still, 
I, I ordered a book specifically about Bulgarian elections during this point, but uh, it was only available in the U.S. and family members are going to bring it to me in June. So I'm looking forward to having more details about the elections, but that's what I've got for now. But despite this overwhelming victory for Stambolov and his supporters, the Russophile supporters of Tsankov were still active in the National Assembly and argued for reconciliation with Russia. Stambolov said, well, said the following in a speech he gave in response to this, quote, We are ready to do all that is possible to bring a reconciliation with Russia, and I shall be happy when this is effected. As a statesman accepted in public life for 15 years, I do not wish to see Bulgaria in bad relations with any power, and especially with Russia. But no sacrifice we could make would be sufficient to bring about this reconciliation. The Bulgarians would be obliged to disown themselves, to relinquish all they have won, to sacrifice their political existence, and this the Bulgarians will never do. I would prefer to see our country fall in the struggle rather than succumb basely. End quote. In fact, shortly afterwards, a Russian journalist confided in Stambolov that some elements in St. Petersburg would be willing to recognize Ferdinand in exchange for Russian officers running the Bulgarian army again and Russian ships being allowed to use Bulgarian ports. Stambolov said no. A few months later, Stambolov told a journalist about another proposal by Russia, which said that if he would merely dismiss Ferdinand and the National Assembly before appointing a new Grand National Assembly to elect a new prince, Russia would normalize relations. But again, Stambolov was adamant that Bulgaria had experienced quite enough turmoil and desperately needed stability. And so, kind of throwing the whole country into chaos in order to get rid of Ferdinand was simply not acceptable. So, overall, 1889 was a pretty good year for Bulgaria. The country had a successful harvest, more economic and diplomatic progress was made, and Ferdinand was settling into his role. However, relations between Ferdinand and Stambolov were also deteriorating. In fact, Ferdinand rebuffed the Prime Minister so intensely on his return to Bulgaria from his trip that Stambolov tendered his resignation. However, Ferdinand denied the resignation and apologized. And frankly, the whole thing was a bit of a power move on Stambolov's part, and Ferdinand felt stupid for having kind of opened the door for him to do that. But Stambolov himself was still firmly in charge of the country, and still bent the constitution to support his authoritarian tendencies. For example, Bulgaria did not have trials by jury at this moment. Judges were appointed by the government, and their rulings and cases were still subject to government oversight. And the result of this was that Stambolov would personally adjust the criminal sentences whenever he wanted to, making them lighter or harsher. And well, all this brings us to the Panitsa affair. Major Kosta Panitsa was a hero of the Serbo-Bulgarian War, a hardliner on Bulgarian annex Bulgaria annexing Macedonia, and a devoted supporter of Battenberg. He and Stambolov had been on quite good terms, but he was gradually becoming disaffected with his moderate approach to the Macedonian question. Though he was more clear on Ferdinand, who he loudly and frequently denounced and despised. Panitsa gradually put together a plan to oust Stambolov and replace him with Radoslavov. Ferdinand would receive an ultimatum to support the new government or leave, 
and Panitsa hoped that he would choose the latter so Battenberg could return. Russian officers would be invited back into the army, and he hoped that this whole kind of approach would reconcile things with St. Petersburg. Now, ironically, the British journalist Bouchier argued that the Russian agents backing Panitsa planned to just assassinate him once the plan was complete. So maybe it's better for Panitsa that everything didn't pan out, but who knows. The original plan was to kidnap Ferdinand along with as many of the ministers of his government as possible in November 1889. But several ministers weren't there, and so the plan was postponed for February. Stambulov actually knew about the plot, but just didn't take it very seriously. In fact, he sent a message to Panitza informing him that he knew about the conspiracy and would tell no one as long as the colonel abandoned his plans. Stambulov, well, his approach made some sense because he knew that arresting the very popular Panitza would create problems, and so just kind of brushing the whole thing under the rug was the easiest way to approach it. And frankly, he assumed that this would be the end of things, but he was wrong. When the head of the Sofia garrison, who Panitza had convinced to join the plot, learned that Stambulov knew everything, he quickly betrayed Panitza in an attempt to save himself. At this point, Stambulov knew that Panitza had basically ignored his request and decided to go ahead with the whole thing, and so it was finally time to arrest him. But Panitza was unaware that he had been betrayed. In fact, he sent a telegram to his Russian contacts claiming that the plot had already succeeded, with the idea that if the Russians started moving in now, then their actions would perfectly coincide with the abduction of Ferdinand, assuming it all went according to plan. Unfortunately for Panitsa, the Russians saw right through this and were aware that the plan had not happened, and, well, Stambulov had been reading his telegrams for some time anyways, and so he also knew about this whole kind of element in the discussions between Panitsa and the Russians. A small army of police and military men were therefore dispatched to arrest Panitsa. In his home, they found a slew of documents confirming that many military officials supported the plot. Now, a ball was actually scheduled the next night, and Ferdinand wanted to cancel it, but no, 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 Stambulov said things should proceed as usual. We shouldn't give any indication that anything is amiss. Just act normal and enjoy the dancing. Now, evidently, this was a very, very awkward event because most of the people present at the ball were aware of the plot and thought that they might be arrested at any moment. And indeed, a few were ultimately arrested. But I mean, just imagine going to a fancy party where more than half the people attending think that they might be arrested at any moment. Like, it's going to be a very weird vibe. Now, Ferdinand and Stambulov, for their part, spent the evenings with loaded guns hidden in their clothes just in case. However, there was simply no way Stumble could arrest everyone involved or everyone who knew about the plot because, well, that would just decimate Bulgaria's military. So instead, he had to make an example out of Panitsa. His trial was held in the spring, and Panitsa proudly explained what he had planned to do, arguing that he was a true patriot. Some plot members got long prison sentences, but Panitsa was ultimately sentenced to death by firing squad. This frankly shocked the country and Sofia. Panitsa was so widely known, popular, and famous for his daring exploits. Few believed that they would actually kill him. 
Even Ferdinand opposed the death sentence, worried about the effect it would have. But Stambolov would not relent, stating, quote, I will sacrifice anyone or anything without exception for Bulgaria and its independence, end quote. Stambolov even ensured that the firing squad would be made up of fellow Bulgarian Macedonians. Panitsa's last words on the morning of June 16th were, Long live Macedonia and Bulgaria. Stambolov had made his point, but in the process he had created a deep hatred for him amongst Macedonian nationalists. In fact, the day after Panitsa's execution, a sign appeared on the spot where he had died, stating, this is where Stambolov and Ferdinand will be shot. Now, despite this anger, Stambolov and Bulgaria had once again proved themselves able to resist yet another Russian plot. Army discipline also improved as it was now very clear what disobedience could get you. And with that, I will wrap up today's episode. Stambolov has had nothing but success in suppressing Russian plots, but it seems each time he does, he angers a new segment of the population. So little by little, his success plants seeds for his ultimate failure. And well, next time, we'll see what happens next. And Stambolov will continue to plant those little seeds. And that's it for today. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Uh, as always, I highly recommend you check out the link in the description below, which will get you all kinds of extra information about the episode. And I will see you in the next one.